Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast from Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. In this podcast, we examine the world through a grace perspective and connect biblical truth in everyday life. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Exchange Podcast. My name is Nolan Smith. I'm your host. I am also the pastor to high school and college students here at Grace Church, and today I am joined once again by Joe Cook, our, uh, let's see, pastor of middle adults and that, education? Yes, that, that that's the, that's the right? full title. Okay, yeah. yes, so um, so we, uh, Joe and I were uh, on here doing a series, this has been now what, a month and a half-ish, something like that, mm-hmm. back in late June, early July, somewhere in there, we did uh, a series on free grace theology, uh, which was really fun for the two of us. We're theology nerds and love to talk about this stuff. So we did this series on free grace theology. If anybody wants to go back and and listen to that, it was a three-parter. You can go back and listen to uh, the three episodes we did on sort of defining free grace theology and and talking through some, some key issues. And... So the response to that has been pretty good. I, I've had I've had a lot of feedback. A lot of people say that that was a real helpful um, something for them to listen to, and and in a m- much less I guess scholarly setting, be able to kind of because neither <laughs> we, of we us we can handle that. We, not neither of us less are, scholarly thing. <laughs> right, right. We're not the scholarly sources, but uh, but I, I've had a lot of people say that that was helpful and. Um, and we had an email question about this. Actually, we had, we had a couple um, of questions that we're going to kind of uh, get into today. We'll, we'll talk about these questions, and, and they're common questions that, that we've heard before, but we got them from actually uh, from people here in Grace Church. So um, real quick, before we get into those questions, for anybody who's listening and potentially didn't, didn't listen to the uh, series that we did before, uh, I do encourage you, if you're listening to this episode and you didn't listen to that series, to go back. But we, we, real quick, just to refresh um, people on what free grace theology is, when we use that term, what we mean. And so, Joe, do you want to just real quick interact with that? What, sure. Just a quick definition of free grace theology. Y- you know, I, w- I would say, obviously, to summarize a theology in a couple of short statements is, well, it's impossible. <laughs> right, yeah. But free grace theology is an emphasis on grace, mm-hmm. and actually the title can sound a little redundant to say mm-hmm. free grace, but it's purposeful because we want to emphasize the nature of grace, that it is a gift mm-hmm. and that there's no strings attached. Right. That would be the, the common theme in all the doctrines, that we, we want people to recognize that this is, we call it amazing grace because it's amazing mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the rare things in this world that sounds too good to be true, but it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's scripturally true that it is a gift. And so each of the doctrinal points are going to relate back to this idea that grace is emphasized and yeah. the free nature of that. Yeah, totally. I, yeah, I always think back to Ephesians 2, and um, we're saved by grace mm-hmm. through faith. And so we want to emphasize that, you know, if we're saved by grace, then that means there's nothing we do on our own, and um, and so the you know the whole idea behind free grace is to show how grace is a free gift that we do not have to earn, and it really 
I think distinguishes itself from other theologies in in its emphasis on that idea that there's nothing we yes. do and we never want we never want the believer to feel like they've you know lost their salvation or or they could lose it or they haven't done enough yet to earn it or to um, ensure that they are safe, anything like that. It's it, we're trying to emphasize this idea that listen, God, God saves by grace alone. You can't do anything to earn it. Can't do anything to lose it. Um, so that's that's kind of the heart behind it. Yes. So that's our quick. And, quick... and just as a note, we're going to be going through Ephesians two here in about three weeks. That's, that's right. Yeah. And uh, and we've started our Ephesians series, and we'll touch on that even here here soon in just a few minutes, but. The first question that I want to get into, this was the question that we had emailed, uh, really, I think it was the, after the first episode we did, um, and I'm, it was one of my uh, former high school and now college students, really proud, and he emailed in and said, what is the role of repentance in salvation? And so uh, this, again, is a question that we've heard before that, that comes up in the, the discussion and the debate about theology, free grace, and the, the other theologies out there. And and so let's let's talk about repentance and salvation. Uh, what is the role of repentance and salvation? And and so we'll start with that question and then kind of interact with all of the elements of it. Okay. So you know, first the the, the question sort of imports a little bit of an assumption that sure, repentance yeah. has a role in salvation. For sure. Yeah. I think maybe the place to start is to talk about what the word means, mm-hmm. the Greek word. Now. The, the fancy word is etymology, the, the study of the origin of words, and that doesn't give you the total understanding of the word, but the word itself simply means change of mind. Mm-hmm. Like Greeks use this term, you know, like change your mind, I want Monterey Jack on my cheeseburger rather than American cheese. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just change of mind. Right. So it's important to keep that in our mind. Obviously, it's always going to come back to context. But when you know the meaning of the word, that helps you understand. Yep. And you kind of get into the, when you start talking about the con- contextual issues related to the word, you start to realize you need to understand how the people are using it. Yeah. You know, what, what is meant by it? What are, we being, what are we talking about in this situation? But I think when you know we're basically talking about a change of mind, that's an important place to start. Yeah, yeah. When, when we uh, were going to do this episode, uh, I went back and did a little, little bit of uh, refresh, uh, refresher on s- some of these topics, and I went back to you know, notes from the seminary classes that we've taken and mm-hmm. one of the books that we've read. And I'll, uh, I'll mention this again at the end, but uh, there's a book that we use called "The Defense of Free Grace Theology," and it's edited by Fred Shea. But there's a, a lot of um, Grace School of Theology professors who who wrote different chapters in there, and there's a there's an actual chapter basically on this. It's like a, a response to this question. I mean, it's it's the role of repentance and salvation, and um, and it in that chapter that one of the first things that that I think it was David Anderson that wrote the chapter. One of the first things that he says is there are there are variations even within free grace theology mm-hmm. how different guys have defined the word and so you get uh you get some guys uh who have said change of mind you get some guys who uh you know Joseph Dillo who wrote Jody Dillo who wrote the the book 
um, Reign of, Reign of Servant, Servant Kings, Kings, which is this monster the tomb. Yeah, theology <laughs> book. Um, really intimidating. But he he wrote this book, and and he uses the remorse for sin as his definition. And then uh, David Anderson and and Hodges have said uh, Zane Hodges resolved to turn from sin. And so yeah. you have these different even within it's so it's it's sort of like for somebody, and and that book was largely a response to a criticism of free grace theology. Yeah. And so they're they're you know sort of reminding the reader that hey if somebody's cr- criticizing or, or critiquing the free grace stance on repentance then you, you have to ask the question which definition are you talking about because even yeah. within free grace there's these variations so you you sort of talk about change of mind is that is that your okay so Ryrie he in his in Ryrie's theology which is one that you and I are familiar with. Mm-hmm. A um, little bit older book, Ryrie holds firmly to the change of mind uh, idea, mm-hmm. and when you when he discusses that in its connection to salvation, well, you think about that when you place your faith in something, your mind is involved in that process. So, in the sense that before to believe in something, I am going to have a change of mind. So, in Ryrie's world, that understanding it. It's not something that happens prior to salvation, yeah. but it happens parallel to it. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, my view on it would be, I, I kind of go with what Charlie Bing has written about it. I always go back to his statement. I think he explains it very simply. I mentioned a while ago the context of who's talking. When when Hebrew people or Jewish people would talk about the mind, they would talk about, you know, as a man thinketh in his heart. Well, that's the heart. So you kind of have this blind blurred about where we think and where we feel. And mm-hmm. you really, in, you, really what you get in the Bible is you kind of have this inner man sort of perspective. Mm-hmm. And so Bing talks a little bit about that in his description. And he really, he would say that it's more of a change of heart. And Tom Rogers and I had a conversation about it, and he's actually the one that pointed me to Bing's definition because... When you start talking about a change of mind or a change of heart, the heart really seems to take it a little bit deeper. And I read something interesting today when when you told me what our topic was, and the person that was writing about it made the made the comment that while salvation, that you know, you're you're coming to faith, will always involve repentance. Repentance doesn't always involve faith, mm. and I thought that was an interesting distinction because. You think about it, when you're convicted, yeah. you have changed your mind. All of a sudden you realize, hey, I'm sensing that what this person's talking about is real. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. Well, then you still have to make a decision whether or not you're going to place your faith in it. Mm. So I don't know that you have to say that they're... I don't think you have to always extract them from one another. But there is there is something about it that's kind of blurry. Yeah. Where I would be firm mm-hmm. in responding to someone is when someone presents the gospel and they say that you have to repent mm-hmm. in order to be in Christ. And the reason I struggle with that is because a lot of times when people hear the word repent, they're importing the idea of turn away yes. from your sin. Yes. And one of the things that is clear is repentance does not mean, it's not an external change. Mm-hmm. It is definitely pointing to something internal. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all say, well, that makes sense. If I'm coming to faith in Christ, or for that matter, if I'm going to 
if I'm going to decide to put my faith in this chair I'm sitting in, yeah. something in, there was some internal dialogue or processing that went on before I sat down. Mm-hmm. But I could have processed it and not sat down. So that, that kind of helped me and makes sense. Also, scripturally, repentance is not always connected to how we come to faith in Christ. The word never shows up in the Gospel of John, mm-hmm. and the purpose of John was written. We to have believe. the purpose statement was written that men might be saved. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And so how can you have a gospel that is specifically designed to bring people to faith if this word is so important, mm-hmm. it's never in there? In fact, I don't think it, I think I also read that it doesn't really show up in Romans in direct connection to hmm. saving faith. Hmm. So that, I think that's some interesting data to interact with. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think to, to, I'm thinking about what you said. What was the, the phrase you used that faith, uh, faith requires repentance? But, Fa- faith would involve, involve that rep- process. Yeah. You know, probably if you go with Ryrie's change of mind, it would be simultaneous. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I don't know with the change of heart, you could say it's simultaneous. I would just, I would be very hesitant to call it a prerequisite, yeah. mainly because of all the ideas that people import into yeah, it. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I, I thought about a, an analogy that I, I often use with students when I'm talking about, you know, they'll hear me say over and over, what does God want you to do? He wants you to trust him. That's mm-hmm. more than anything else. What does he want for you? He wants you to trust him. And that's a, I, I, I use that on two levels. I use it on the level of like, he wants you to trust him for salvation, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, and that's a sort of a one-time decision. But even beyond that, he wants you to trust him in your daily life. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'll use this analogy of a bridge, and I'll say, you know, there's, there are going to be two people who approach a bridge, and they see the bridge ahead, and they go, okay, there's a, there's a, you know, a chasm or, or a canyon or whatever, and and there's a bridge that that goes over that that mm-hmm. gap and i can look at that bridge and go wow that bridge looks like it would hold me up if i walked on it mm-hmm. but you know the other person might look at it and say i don't know if that bridge will hold me or not but that person steps out and walks across it now mm-hmm. one looked like they had doubt the other one looked like they had faith but the one that stepped out was actually putting their faith in action mm-hmm. and even if it didn't seem like they had a lot of faith they had enough to step out on the bridge now that's helpful i think in so far as we're talking about god wanting us to trust him and when we ask the question so what does it look like to trust god mm-hmm. and i think i think it, what it looks like to trust god is to live your life as if it's true that jesus rose from the grave and offered you salvation from mm-hmm. you know eternal salvation and eternal life and and so it's helpful to to think okay what is how does god want me to live but i don't know if it's as helpful in this when we're talking about this idea of repentance because yeah. because i think i think when we talk about repentance it goes back to what you said where when we import a definition of external mm-hmm. an external reality a, a way of living then we have imported a definition that requires a person, if we're going to say repentance is required in salvation, and then it requires a person to live their life a certain way yeah. in order to be saved. And we, we would not affirm that. We just, we, we have to, what we see in scripture seems too obvious to, to the contrary. I'm really pretty comfortable with, I would say any of the free grace definitions of, of repentance. I, 
I mean, I would, when you dig into the details of it, there's some that I lean, obviously I, I lean towards Bing's understanding of it. I think the key thing to understand is there's not good evidence to interpret repentance as a change of actions. Mm. Um, one of the proofs that's given for that is there's a Hebrew word for to turn away. Yeah. It's shub or shuv. I'm not sure how you mm. pronounce it. But anyway, in that Hebrew, when they did the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, when they translated that word to turn away or to turn to mm. or turn from, the word that's metanoia, the Greek word for repentance, yeah. is never, never used to translate that concept. Mm. So you would think if there was any connection in the physical turning away or the changing of a behavior, right. there would be at least one example where that word was used. And then when you see the context of Scripture and how we come to faith, the idea that I have to somehow clean my life up mm -hmm. in order to be acceptable that flies in the face of the idea of grace, of exactly. unmerited favor, and what Christ... The reason we need a Savior is because we can't do it exactly. ourselves. So logically, there's an issue with importing that idea. Yeah. So really, I think the main thing to understand with the repentance is it's an inward change. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, personally, I could be okay with saying that it happens simultaneously, at the time that you mm -hmm. believe, because obviously something inside is yeah. happening, but as a prerequisite, that's where I it starts to make me uncomfortable, and I don't yeah. feel like there's good evidence for right. that in Scripture. I've, I've always felt like the definition to change your mind is seems accurate enough to me, yeah. and then it's, so, it's simple enough to look at it and go, okay, is repentance necessary for salvation? Well, what does the Bible say about salvation i go back to ephesians 2 uh, it is by grace you've been saved through faith and not of not of your own work so that no man may boast okay what we see there is god offers by his grace he offers a way for us into relationship and eternal life with him yeah. he explicitly says there's nothing you can do to earn it mm -hmm. okay so how do we accept that grace by faith by faith right that that mm -hmm. phrase by faith is right there so that faith is sort of the vehicle by which grace, grace is accessed or delivered mm -hmm. to us. So if that's the case, then to me, repentance is simply the, the sort of activation of the faith. It's the, it's the idea that, look, the, the grace is sitting there all along, There's, mm -hmm. and, and, it, and it's, it's there whether you repent or you don't, right? Mm -hmm. that, that Jesus died on the cross whether you repent or you don't. So how do you access the gift that that it is well you you believe in it mm -hmm. and that idea of believing is like you said earlier it's changing your mind it's going from i don't believe that or i don't maybe mm -hmm. for somebody i don't know about that to i know i know about it and i and i believe it i believe that it's mm -hmm. it's sufficient i believe that it is what i need that's a change of mind mm -hmm. and and it's not a it's not a an external reality for a person it's not a matter of lifestyle or what they're doing with themselves or a, a rejection of future sin or mm -hmm. the uh, the guarantee that they won't sin in certain ways or to a certain degree again yeah all it is is the change of mind about whether or not jesus died for you yeah you know scholars argue about or they discuss the idea that 
the translation of the Greek word to our English word repentance is problematic because it sounds so much like penance. Mm. And if if any of our listeners or anybody interacts with it has a, a background in Catholicism, Catholicism yeah. you know, penance is this idea of, okay, this is what I do to receive the forgiveness. So there's an unfortunate vocabulary connection there yeah. where repent sounds like penance and there's there's a common root in the latin but it doesn't have anything to do with the idea that's in scripture but yeah. we're too far we're two thousand years in we're not going to probably change how yeah. <laughs> right how we how we how we do that word i think the key is recognizing there's not an external requirement of some type of change yeah. before you can come to faith in christ because the only way you can have change is by being in Christ mm-hmm. and His power uh, flowing through you is what allows there to be the fruit manifested in your life for the change to come. That's why we need a Savior. Yeah, theologians are really good about arguing. You know, the the good the example that's sort of famous is they'll argue about how many angels can dance on the head of a mm-hmm. pin, that yeah, type yeah. of thing. You know, we can get down into the little details and bicker back and forth, but. I think the big idea to walk away from is there's not good evidence to point to an external change. Like I have to, yeah. I have to stop doing X, Y, Z before I can place my faith in Christ. Right. So, so bottom line for the, the answer to this question, what is the role of repentance or is repentance required in salvation? We would say if you're, if you're meaning that you have to change your mind and to accept the gift of grace, then yes. If you mean anything more than that, that has anything to do with how you live, what you do, is that required for you to be saved? And we would say no. Yeah. So is that is that yep. a fair I can live with that. summary of that? So <laughs> yeah. hopefully that's that's a, a clarifying and and for anyone who's wondered about that or wonders what our stance in within sure. free grace or at Grace Church would be, hopefully that that helps to to clear that up and and um, and if there are further questions about that, then I hope. Anyone sure. Would reach Come out and that. talk to us. You know, one of the things we're not taking the time, we don't have the time to do, is to dig into individual verses. Mm-hmm. And there are some verses that really make you scratch your head. Yeah. You know, so if a person, they come across something and they're really struggling with this, mm-hmm. then yeah, you know, call Nolan. He'll <laughs> set you straight. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I need all week. Um, no, I, we, we do love talking about this stuff. We really, we really do enjoy it and, um, and would love to interact with those questions, but we, we have other stuff to talk about within this. And, and this hits a little bit closer to where you've spent your last week or so. And, Mm -hmm. and so another question that we've gotten is it's around this idea of predestination. Sure. And so you touched on that in your sermon this past week, which was cool. And, Mm -hmm. and so let's, let's start the, you know, as we talk about predestination, and this is a really, I think this is a big one when people, anytime somebody, a Christian, comes to the idea of predestination, it, it really does, I think it it just stops them in their tracks a little bit. And they go, what do we do with this? Yep. You know, and, and how do I, what am I supposed to do with the idea that, that things are, anything is predestined, especially my salvation. So So let's start with, what predestination typically means to people? What are, what's the connotation that, that comes with that word? Sure. You know, uh, like I said but when we began, you know, to summarize a theology in a few sentences, it's hard to do justice. And so if someone out there is 
you know, in a, one of these other traditions in theology, mm-hmm. I, it's hard to define a whole system in a few words, but simply stated, there are other traditions that believe that in eternity past, God made some predetermined mm-hmm. plans, which at the root level, I would agree with that. But the, what they would import into that idea is that God determined who would be in Christ and who would not be in Christ. Right. In other words, faith itself, which we'll address in a few weeks in Ephesians, that they would hold the idea that faith is the gift, that God had to give you were so dead, you couldn't even believe. Right. You had to have faith imparted to you before you could ever even receive it. And so he gives that gift to some people, and some people he doesn't. And it looks a lot like fate, and the reason it looks a lot like fate it's because it's a lot like fate. Yes. <laughs> and and we would the the sort of technical term we use is fatalism. Fatalism, thank yeah. you. Yeah. So we so it, it really is the, which is a pagan idea. A pagan idea that, that mm-hmm. it's uh you know, when we trace that back through Augustine, which which we read read all about that with our mm-hmm. seminary professor, but the the idea from um Neoplatonism, yeah, Manichaeanism. I was I started to say Stoicism, but I think it's Manichaeanism that yeah, that they they have this idea that even the where where a leaf falling from a tree where Mm -hmm. it lands is determined by the in their in their worldview uh, uh, gods or uh, the the universe or whatever it is, and that's determinism that, Mm -hmm. that every tiny little minute detail of what's happening is determined by the higher power. And a more modern scholar uses the concept of there is no maverick molecule Mm. anywhere in the universe, that Mm. God controls and superintends every single movement down to the molecular level. That's how much control is exercised. In that view. In that view. And further, we just to, to make the point further, the uh, the word if you hear the word sovereignty mm-hmm. that is often what Tied what is meant it. by many people who hold this view that if god is sovereign they mean that god determines to the minute detail everything that happens and so mm-hmm. that's and god if he's omni uh, omnipotent and omnipresent then he must be determining every little thing i mean if, yeah. if he's he exists in all the universe at every moment and every uh, in every space, then he is determining what's happening, and so th- so that's the idea of predestination. And and to go back to what you said about faith must be imparted on us. Mm-hmm. And again, I want to clarify for anybody who's who's listening as we talk. We are defining a view. We are not that saying we do not agree with. We, yeah, we are not saying <laughs> this is what we believe. We're we're defining sort of the typical mm-hmm. connotation that's brought along with this idea of predestination. And and to go back to what you said about that that it's often said that faith is a gift is the gift given mm-hmm. to us. I don't know if we said this in the last series that we talked about, but there is a there is a metaphor that is used to make this point where um Everybody is a corpse at the bottom of the ocean. Mm-hmm. That every human being, and that—that's what total depravity means. That we are, mm-hmm. we are totally incapable of of any good work, including the acceptance of our salvation, the acceptance of grace. So, 
God must impart, like you said, it must impart the gift of mm-hmm. faith so that we can then activate that that yeah. gift. And so in the analogy, we're all corpses and God is on this lifeboat and he is reaching into the bottom of the ocean and pulling the corpse up mm-hmm. and reviving them so that they become alive and then believers who follow him. And that's the analogy to, mm-hmm. to illustrate this. And so when, when we typically hear that word predestination, those are all of the things that come along behind it that are, yeah. that are with it. And so that's what we want to sort of interact with, I think. Okay. So let's talk about why that's confusing. So, so why is that definition or why, why are all of those things that we talk about with predestination problematic or confusing to the believer? So you've got to think through, if you hold to that belief, what does that mean for my life? If God in eternity past, he chose some for elect, some to be the elect, he chose some to uh, have faith, and he chose, or he didn't choose the others, then why is it that we go and witness, if it's all dependent upon God? If it's all dependent upon God, um, how is he then just in punishing the people who don't believe because there's there are rebukes and there's you know uh, conversation in in the scripture about but you don't believe and so that's there's consequences to that how can you hold someone guilty for something they couldn't do in the first place is the are these are the normal logical questions that a person should ask right. if he's controlling every molecule in the universe then that means he's controlling my decisions, my actions, my reactions. So there's a lot of stuff that comes in there that there aren't really a lot of good answers for mm-hmm. if you hold that position. Right. Yeah, and the the God is a moral monster argument. Yeah. It's the, I think it's Richard Dawkins was the one that was really big on that one, but mm-hmm. um, that, that if God... You know, if you're going to take that view, and like you're saying, it's going to it comes with a lot of problems, and it's really hard to answer some of these questions. And and a lot of atheists have attacked that point. Sure. With okay, hey, if God is determining all of this, what do you do with evil? And that mm-hmm. means God is the author of evil. And so you always hear people of this theological position have to answer the question: Is God the author of evil? And and mm-hmm. they reject that. And and we agree. We and and the sense that the conclusion they come to that God is not executing evil in the world, we agree with them, but we find that their explanation doesn't help them get there. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, so yeah, it, it's a, it can be real confusing can be confusing for the believer, for the, for the unbeliever who's looking in from the outside and mm-hmm. wondering why should I follow a God who determines everything? Why should I, why should I make any decision? Mm-hmm. So to, to sort of clarify what we believe about predestination and how we in free grace can answer some of these questions. I want to go back to your sermon on Sunday and mm-hmm. you, you use this airplane analogy mm-hmm. to, to sort of articulate the free grace understanding. So can you rehash that sure. a little bit? So uh, election, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, they are biblical where we would depart from the traditions that hold the view we just explained 
is in what is God electing, what is God predestining. And so the analogy that I gave, and by the way, it wasn't original with me. I, I got it from somebody else. Well, it was much better than the one I've often used, so I've got to give you that. So the idea is that God, in eternity past, he knew what his plan of redemption was going to be. I mean, God is not, first of all, he's omnitemporal, which is a whole other discussion that we can go into sure, in the yeah. sense that he's outside of time. He knows tomorrow as well as he knows today. I mean, Scripture tells us he knows the end from the beginning. Uh, there's lots of passages we can go to. In fact, it's one of the art, one of the apologetics for the supernatural origin of Scripture is the fact that there are some prophecies that, man, there's no way those could have been in print before the event happened. But because he knows what's going to happen, he he had a plan. That plan was a plan of redemption, the plan of grace of what the eternal son of God was going to do. Well, for the people that believed in him, he has a plan for them. When you're in Christ, you're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. You're going to be a citizen of heaven. You're going to be adopted. All those things we talked about in the sermon and the analogy was the airline chooses where the plane goes. We could even go so far as to name the plane Christ. Father, the airlines, chooses where Christ is going to go, what the destination is, predetermines the destination. It doesn't mean that he predetermines who's on the plane. You know, we have what has often been referred to as a tension in Scripture between free will and God's sovereignty. I don't believe there is a tension. Mm -hmm. I believe when you start to understand that, yes, God in his sovereignty, he could control every molecule. Right. He doesn't control every molecule. In fact, Jesus stood before Jerusalem, and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings. And the last five words of that verse are, But you were not willing. Mm -hmm. there, is a, there are boundaries where God has said, I am going to give you mm -hmm. the choice. I'm going to make a proposition, right. and I'm inviting you to choose. And that is all through Scripture. And the fact that people have a choice, I mean, look at our world. It's pretty clear that people have choice. Yeah. The world looks exactly the way you would expect it to look if there were free agents running around with yeah. ideas that weren't good. Right. <laughs> so how do you respond to somebody who would say, okay, but if, if there is a choice within man, mm -hmm. that means that God doesn't have the power anymore you know, that that takes away from his omnipotence, from his power. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that if, if the argument is about, hey, free will diminishes God's power? Sure. I, I would describe free will as a gift. You know, if I had, when my daughter was young, when she was six years old, I could say to her, I could say, Natalie, where do you want to go eat? I'm giving her the choice. If she said she wanted pizza, okay, let's go get pizza. Is my power diminished because I've handed over to her a choice? Obviously not. It's an act of love. It's an act of, um, I'm inviting you into this decision. Let's, let's go together. What sounds good to you? And that's what you see in, in Genesis. You see God creating man in his image, and then he gives them duties to do certain things, right. to name the animals. Right. God didn't give him a list of names to choose from, he said, name the animals. So he invited man into the process. And so and I would say 
and ag- against the idea that it diminishes his power, I would say it increases the idea, it exalts his mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. because he's given his children choices. Right. Yeah. And, and I think it's a really good analogy. And this is a total side note, but I wanna mm-hmm. I do want to touch on this because it's it's been on my on my mind a lot lately. The way you just use that part of Genesis mm-hmm. to to illustrate the the point that God was handing over authority. Yeah. I think that again, this is way off of what we were mm-hmm. talking about, and I'll come right back to the conversation. But it's important that we look at something like Genesis and we go, uh, what is this saying about God? Mm-hmm. And what's how does how does this speak to the larger narrative of scripture? And it would there are so many times people read, especially this especially happens in Genesis, but people read a passage, and they get so hung up. And I say this as a theology nerd who is <laughs> is always at risk of getting hung up on in the in the weeds. But you read a passage like that, and you go, "What is it saying about God? What is He trying to tell us about Himself and about us?" Not, you know, uh, what what language did God intend for Adam to use when yes. He named the animals, or some mm. some technical detail of the story? You're looking at that and going. Here, this is what it tells us about God and about man and about the relationship. He was he was handing over authority to willingly handing this authority over. And that's just a really important note on when we read scripture, not to let ourselves get caught up in the which is actually very relevant to what we're doing now. And we want to make sure we don't we don't get so hung up on these words in a way that distracts us from the larger point, which is what we're we are trying to do that. We're trying to go, hey, what's the what is the larger point of scripture and you know we all, it's god is revealing himself to us and so we want to we we're simply trying to understand okay god by by saying this what are you telling us about yourself what are you mm-hmm. telling us about us and our relationship with you so i just think it's important for anybody who is interacting with scripture on this and they're trying to go in and and read and they they see words and phrases and they get hung up yeah don't don't let yourself get caught in the wrong uh, angle, I guess, on the de- these details. Remember that, that this is God revealing Himself. Ask the question: What does it say about God? What does it say about me? That is a side note, and I wanted to. I just appreciated your use of that mm-hmm. practice in this. So, coming back to predestination, um, I this is where I went back and looked. Uh, I, I was telling you before we started. I went back and watched a, one of our lectures that. Mm-hmm. that uh, under Ken Wilson, who we both took for free grace theology, and he he talks about there are a lot of terms. So when we when we talk about predestination and people get hung up, there's a lot of terms that get uh, conflated. Yeah. So so determined is mm-hmm. is a word that when it's interpreted or when it's when it's uh, translated is uh, there's often this word determined that we we go oh this look God's determining something and. Mm-hmm. and and we said the word fatalism earlier. There's a, yeah. a similar word, determinism, which is mm-hmm. God determining everything. Hard determinism means that God determines every minute detail. So this word determined often is a word where people go, look, God's determining things in Scripture. But if you look at the context, it's mostly about Jesus, yeah. that he was determined to, that it was determined that Jesus would come and die. So there was this mm-hmm. plan in place of for plan of salvation. So yeah. God had this plan mm-hmm. long, long ago in, in eternity past that, that Jesus would 
die for our sins, right? See hints of it in Genesis 3. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture that this was determined, Mm -hmm. that Jesus was going to come to die. So that's, that's typically the the use of the word determined, but it never has anything to do with eternal destiny. Correct. Another word, appointed, uh, is often is often cited. First Peter two eight is a good example. Uh, they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Mm-hmm. That verse can sound a little bit like people were appointed to be basically non believers, condemned mm-hmm. to hell. Is is how it it often gets twisted a little bit, but. You go back to Luke six, uh, Luke sixteen thirty one, and Jesus says, "If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if one rises from the dead." Yeah, and the the idea is, he, he's again, it speaks to the free will of man, you know, to believe or not believe, and that people were appointed not to believe, and how by their own hard hearts by their own refusal and it was their in, it was the interaction with the word of god what did they believe about the word of god mm-hmm. and and so their refusal to believe the word of god appointed them for disobedience sure. so um you know the sort of the the final point that he made was there's only two verses on being prepared to eternal life or hell and both are again in response to god's word they it's how how a person interacts with god's word there are only two verses. This I think this is interesting in light of our f- sermon series. There's only two verses um, where predestined is an election, mm-hmm. and neither explain how. But foreknowledge is in in the context that God knew mm-hmm. beforehand in this process of determine uh, or, or predestined, and they're both in Ephesians one. Yeah. So you taught, <laughs> you know, you, you had the, the chunk of scripture where the, the yeah. only two examples of what we're talking about happen. And so you had the, the sort I drew of... drew the short straw. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so, again, I, I hope that's... Unless, unless you have anything to add to the predestined idea. So there, there's a huge issue there. Just, I, I love your question that, you know, you talked about how this impacts our lives. And so if it's not too soon, I kind of want to go there. Yeah, that's actually where we're headed next. So This whole idea of God's sovereignty and how much he controls and how much does he let people interact with their reality, and I get this from Ravi Zacharias. A person came up to him at one of his speeches, and they said, you know, if God is good, how can there be evil in the world? Now, this is the question we've all asked. We've all had someone that we've lost or know someone who's lost someone, and we, we're struggling with the, the loss of life and these hard things in the world. And so you're left with, a, with the dichotomy of choosing either God is good, but he's not all-powerful, or he's all-powerful, but is he really good? And the assumption is there, if he's all-powerful, then he's going to control everything. And what Zacharias does in a, in a wonderful like a little eight-minute clip you can find on YouTube, he, describ- he describes the fact that in a world, of all the worlds that God could make, mm-hmm. there's only one world where love could exist. Love can only exist when, when people have free will, when we have the ability to make choices. He could have created a world where everybody did exactly what he wanted them to do, Every single time, he could control every single molecule Mm -hmm. in the universe, but he doesn't. He bequeaths, so to speak, to Mm -hmm. his creation the ability to make choices, 
And then he allows us, for the most part, to experience the consequences of those choices. Yeah. You know, one of the words, and it can be stated very firmly, but just to put it sort of gently, forced love is not love. Mm-hmm. If God forced people to always do the right thing and he forced people always to love him and always to love each other, we couldn't really call that love in the way we understand love. Mm-hmm. Love is something that we give to someone because we it's our gift to them. We, we choose to love them. The sacrificial love that we see in Scripture is based on free will. He gives that to us. He invites us in. Some old Southern preachers would use the concept that God is a gentleman, that he doesn't force himself upon mm-hmm. people. Um, all those ideas are very important. And, and when Ravi Zacharias walks through this, it really has rocked my world when I first heard him go through it because it described the world that we live in looks exactly the way you would expect it to look if God had decided to give his creation the ability to make choices. Mm. We have a word we call sin. We have a word we call trespasses. These are things that people do that are against the will of God. Mm -hmm. He tells us he doesn't like these things, and yet he has decided to create beings that can make choices that are contrary to what he says are good. Mm -hmm. And when God weighed it all in the balance, he decided, you know what, in order for there to be love, there has to be free will. And he decided that the price was worth what was gained, and it cost him the cross. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you use the word invite, mm-hmm. and that to me is the is one of the real key words in this whole conversation. Is if if God does determine everything and, and predetermines everything, including our eternal destiny, then we obviously we don't have a choice. And like you said, He's forced us into something. He's created robots you know, and where he wires us and programs us how, mm-hmm. how we, whatever we do, um, it's, it's already been determined. The real interesting, and, and this is, a, again, a, a little bit of a side note, but it's a, to me it's an extremely interesting one. That's a, that is it actually what the naturalist believes. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 the atheist who believes that the universe is totally without a higher power uh, who essentially looks at everything and says, this is all the process of evolution, and, mm-hmm. and that's what naturalism is as a, as a worldview. They believe that we are hardwired. Marching to the beat of the DNA that, and the pre-programming, exactly. but they never tell you who the programmer was. Right, but, <laughs> but, they, but they would hold, like the logical end of naturalism as a worldview mm-hmm. is that we are, and, so, and it's it's also funny to see people who hold to that worldview. Some will reject this. Some will mm-hmm. in, embrace it. Some will say, "Yes, that, that's exactly what I believe," and, and others will uh, will say, "Well, I, I don't actually believe that," even though that does seem to be the logical end of this mm-hmm. lo- this argument. Um, then, you know, there are movies like Minority Report about you know, can you predict if somebody's going to commit a crime based on mm-hmm. their profiling? Yeah, you know. based on their their DNA, and mm-hmm. uh, because if you Theoretically, if you knew every every tiny little element of a person's genetic makeup, you could tell what they were going to do, how they were going to behave. And that is a very scientific, naturalistic idea that we are the product of um, 
of a process outside of our control mm-hmm. and that whatever we do is already has already been decided yeah. and that we're we are the sum of our parts mm-hmm. and the decisions we make aren't really decisions at all like free will is an illusion yeah. um, and and we are simply operating in a world that has has you know played out the way that it has and that there's it, everything's inevitable it's just so, so interesting to me that there is a Christian theological worldview that mirrors that mirrors that that mm-hmm. that, 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 that would would agree with that in some in some manner, but would invoke God where the naturalist invokes you know say natural evolution selection, yeah, yeah natural selection. So it's very very interesting to me. But mm-hmm. uh, going back to what we were talking about and and the point that you made or the the word that you use with an in, invite. I, I think that, to me, I mentioned before that free grace theology sort of unlocked the the character of God for me. Good word. Yeah, that it, yeah. it, it, it really helped me see God in a way that I thought was much more clear mm-hmm. than ever before when I started to really utilize it. And the, the biggest thing about it was that it showed me God is always inviting me into that relationship, never forcing me, never yep. guilt tripping me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we refer often to the story of the prodigal son. I mean, yes. I, I went back to that in communion, you know, mm-hmm. last week. That is so, uh, that is so indicative of the, this inviting heart of God that he, he doesn't, he doesn't want to force anything in, in the, in his relationship with us on us, he wants to draw us in. He wants us to, to see what he is offering. And I, the, the verse in the Psalms, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm-hmm. It's an, inv- an invitation. It is an, it is a, Hey, I'm going to show you my, who I am and what I'm capable of and what I want for you. And I'm going to give you the choice, mm-hmm. but I, but I'm going to show you that what I've got is better than anything that you'll find anywhere else. And I want to draw you into this relationship. So that word invite is so important and so helpful to me. Um, and I think when we talk about why predestination in this sense matters for our lives, that's mm-hmm. a, to, to me, that's, that's why. And again, I, we would say that he does predetermine some things. Um, I hope to have grandchildren someday. And when I find out that I'm going to have a grandchild, I probably will predetermine to spoil them rotten, so to speak. <laughs> you know, I may start predetermining, okay, I'm going to do this for my grandchild. I'm going to do that for my grandchild. God knew there would be people who would be in Christ. And before the foundation of the world, he said, I'm going to bless them. And we're going to be looking at that in Ephesians 2, that these riches, he's going to be pouring out the riches of grace upon grace throughout all eternity. We become the trophies of his grace, the demonstration of his character and his love. Um, you know, I, you go back to Genesis all the time for these these things. I don't think Genesis was written primarily to tell us how God did everything. Mm-hmm. I think it's totally telling great. us who did yes, it, exactly. but also revealing the character of the one who did it. Could not agree more with that. Yeah. So uh, we, you, touch, you, you really covered this and, and why repentant. I mean, I'm sorry, why our understanding of predestination matters mm-hmm. in our life. I think you could say the same about ministry. You, you said this uh, earlier, but you know, when it comes to something like evangelism, mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to m- any kind of ministry to a, to another person, 
you really get to the question of like, what's the point? God's gonna God's gonna do what He's gonna do, mm-hmm. and uh, and so it it I think takes takes our motivation and our sort of volition away from us as to you know I, I don't I don't have control in this situation. Why would I do that? So that's the that's the I think the the why predestination matters, why our understanding matters. But let's real quick as we close, go back to the repentance and salvation idea. Why is why does that matter? What's the, what are the implications of maybe getting that wrong when we talk sure. about repentance being necessary for salvation? So when I was younger and understood that repentance meant change your ways, I shared the gospel with a friend who I have since uh, asked for their forgiveness that they had to stop a certain mm-hmm. behavior in order to be a Christian. Um, there, there's your ramification. If repentance means turns away mm-hmm. or turn away from something, and so you have to turn away from something in order to come to faith in Christ, there's a, you're just placing a huge hurdle in front of that person. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the application issue, right. the properly understanding of the word. It's talking about something internal, not external, and it's not a prerequisite. At the most, it's parallel with, yeah. you know, at the same time, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I've, <laughs> it's funny you you mentioned that. I I have a similar um, memory of talking to a friend in college about uh, about salvation. It was a different angle, different topic. We, it wasn't about. I didn't say that they had to do something, you know, live a certain way in order to do it. But I did. I I was. Um, lacking in tact in my <laughs> answer to their question, and I have always regretted that. And and um, so, anyways, all that to say, th- these things do matter. They matter in how we, uh, not only in how we live our own lives, but how we interact with other people and the relationships that we have. So, you know, real, real quick, yeah. There's a flip side to something that we've talked about. We just said that God doesn't force everyone to come to Christ, mm, mm-hmm. that choice is involved in that. A flip side stressor on that is, oh my goodness, then if I don't tell this person about Christ, and if I don't do it just right, good point. then they may not come to Glad Christ. Said that, yeah. We need to remember that the Scripture is clear that God is the initiator, that the Holy Spirit is the one that convicts. We are His we are willing partners in that where we come along the side of the Lord and say, we want to be used by you. But we need to realize I had a friend who's had a brother who died and he was concerned because he never shared the gospel with him. And so we started talking through the logic of that. And one of the questions that I believe the Lord gave me to ask him was, so you're telling me you believe your brother may not be in heaven because you weren't faithful. If that's true, then logically your brother needed Jesus and and you. Mm. Now, does that square with your understanding of God's power, his love, his character, and the testimony of Scripture? And it doesn't. Mm. God does invite us to be a part of the process, Mm -hmm. but we're seeing all over the world, in worlds where you're not allowed to evangelize, that God has a way of getting to gathering his children home. If there's a person out there... I believe, who would receive the gospel, yep. God is going to know that, and he has a way of getting that gospel mm-hmm. to them. Yeah, totally. I, I think that's a really important point to make, that we we don't want to miss that flip side. And and uh, and I think that your answer to your 
you're, put person, a big burden on them. I think that was a. I think that was really good. Uh, the the Jesus and the brother. It was that's right. So I think that's a great way of, of thinking about it. So yes, and it, we are not going the route of if if it's all depending upon me. Yeah, it's all depending <laughs> on me and and um, and I, I think I always go back to scripture. Uh, I think it's First Peter. Uh, God desires that all men would be First saved. Timothy chapter two verse yeah. three. I don't have a lot memorized. Yeah, but I have that one. I this think it's in good. First Peter two. And two. Peter says one something similar to it. Yeah, this is good and pleases God our Savior who uh-huh. wants all men to be yes. saved. Yeah. So, so I think you know we've got um, we've got scripture that got it was very explicit that God desires for people to to know Him, and so He is not going to. Uh, you know, put it in our court in the sense that, it, okay, hey, I want this, but I'm going to put it on, you know, there's this person who only has one Christian in his life, so that one Christian is responsible entirely for whether or not they actually have a chance. And I don't, you know, that, again, that goes back to what you said. It doesn't square with what we know about God's character. And if he desires that all men would be saved, he's going to provide a, a way for all men to be saved and uh, and not force it, but allow... Um, and ensure that everyone has that chance, and that's that's how I see it as well. So, with that, uh, I want to close simply by providing some resources to our listeners who are interested. Mm-hmm. Um, some things that we sometimes we refer to these, other times, uh, and, and we don't always necessarily use these. But there's a couple websites, and feel free to add mm-hmm. to this list. A couple of websites I wanted to, to give people gracelife.org. That's mm-hmm. Charlie Bing. Yes. And uh, he's got a lot of really good stuff. These are both of these websites are. What I like about his website is it's, it's written for the non theologian mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and he writes it in a very condensed way. I think Bing is really good at that. Yeah. And so uh, both of these websites I'm providing are sort of blog style um, and you can search sort of by topic mm-hmm. or you can search a question and. They, they usually have an article that you can read um, on whatever you're specifically looking for. So gracelife.org is a really good one, Charlie Bing. Uh, faithalone.org is the, that's the Grace Evangelical Society. It's Bob Wilkin and um, blanking on the other guy's name, Lazar. Mm, I don't know. I, I can't think of it. And, um, and so faithalone.org is a good one from the Grace Evangelical Society. And then the one that, that I've found to be most helpful is a book. It's, I mentioned it at the beginning of this, it was the a defense of free grace theology. It's edited by Fred Shea, but it was uh, contrib- there were a lot of contributors to that, um, all the different chapters, um, and and uh, it's pretty thick, but it's it's a good reference book. Good it's reference. Book, all of yeah. the all of the chapters sort of break down by kind of question, and they they take some key Bible passages that mm-hmm. that are oftentimes difficult to understand. You mentioned how and there's some scripture that brings up some really tough questions. Mm-hmm. Most of those they get they cover in this book. So you can just look in the table of contents and uh, and read what they have to say. Great. I mean, the second chapter in that book is the one we've talked about with our, our professor, Ken Wilson, goes back and looks at Augustine's theology, and it's super, super interesting. Yes. Um, so um, anyways... Those are all helpful resources for those who are looking to do a little bit more research on their own. A couple of others. Um, there's a book by Anthony Badger. I quoted it this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the title of it is Confronting Calvinism. Yeah. And so that would be one of the traditions that would hold some of those views yeah. that we, we've discussed. Um, believe he does it in a, in a fairly gracious way. And one of the things with all of these resources, it doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with every single line or yeah, every right. single word. Uh, a podcast, and I would give this disclaimer that I don't necessarily agree with everything on it, but Leighton Flowers, yeah. Soteriology yeah, 101, you can pull it up on podcast. He handles some things really well. He's interviewed our professor several uh, yeah. we've talked about several times. Yep. Um, again, not that we would agree with everything that's on every podcast, mm-hmm. but he's a good thinker yeah. and a clear speaker. And, and I, I think to, to your point, he's he's bringing up things that... You know, I talked to somebody recently who was like, I didn't know there was anything else other than Calvinism. I thought that was all Christianity yeah. was. And Flowers, what what I appreciate about appreciate about his podcast is just opening the door yeah. to other ideas that you're like, oh, okay, yeah, there is. That's why I don't, I don't, ha- it, you don't have to be pigeonholed into a certain theological view. That's right for and, scripture to make sense. And let me say right up front, I have benefited from uh, many teachers who would be in the Calvinist camp. A hundred percent. And I used to hold to many of those views. Me too. Had someone come up to me after church Sunday and, you know, very lovingly and politely expressed to me that they disagreed with one of my points. That's great. Sure. You know, one of my, one of the guys I, I quoted Sunday, uh, Neil Anderson, he said, he has a quote that I use a lot that says, it's not doctrine that divides, it's mm-hmm. intellectual arrogance mm-hmm. that divides. Yeah. We are brothers in Christ. Uh, we can have a difference of opinion. Yeah. These differences matter, mm-hmm. and it's important to talk about. But we can do it with grace yeah. and with maturity. And you know, you don't have to agree with every single thing that yeah. comes out of Nolan's mouth or mine. Yeah, and, and to ben- <laughs> yeah to benefit from any pastor or a theologian, like you're saying, you don't have to agree with them. But you know, I I disagree with a lot of John Piper's theology. Sure. But that he has one of the one of the best reputations as as just one of the kindest, mm-hmm. most gracious people, and and I've listened. You know, there's a he did a lecture one time on C.S. Lewis mm-hmm. that was well. Then we love him. Yeah, that was and it, <laughs> what was so great about it too was Piper was saying there are theological points where I disagree with C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. Sure, and and he even said there's some big ones. Some mm-hmm. some where you go. You would almost think if I found a person who thinks this way that I would have to reject everything they say. And he says, yeah. C.S. Lewis saw things this way, and it was very di- it's very different from me, and yet I'll still tell you to, if there's a book by C.S. Lewis you haven't read, you should read, read it. it. Yeah. And and so, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're, yeah, when we say these things and we talk about disagreements theologically, we are not rejecting. We're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. No. We're not rejecting anybody wholesale if we disagree on these points. We're all going to get to get heaven and go, whoops, yeah. <laughs> I was wrong on that one. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, that's so true. So uh, that's it for this episode. Joe, thank you for joining me fun. again. Thank we, you for having me back. I always enjoy the theological conversations, So, and, and we'll have many more of these, whether on here or not. So uh, we'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, hope everybody has a great week, and we'll see you then.